This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Please, could I just say this to you, young folk? Make yourself a committee of one to change somebody's mind. If people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. And it's up to you to do it. We are the most powerful country in the whole United States. And we must get together and get rid of the disparities, the joblessness and homelessness and health care that some people can get and others can't. And climate change that we are responsible for. And if we don't do something about it, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Yes. Dr. Carr, yes. Good morning. Good everything. That good was everything. Mother Opal Lee. I feel like I've stepped back in time and good good everything, everyone, Nubians especially. Uh good morning. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Uh good evening. Love you. Um I I uh this week sat with uh Mother Viola Fletcher. Mm-hmm. And, oh yeah, uh, you talked to Mother Fletcher. Yeah, and Hugh Van uh, Ellis, uh, 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 Uncle Red, yes, 109 and 102, respectively. And then I see 92 year old Opal Lee, oh, 96. 96. I'm sorry, she started this journey 92. And she jumped uh, up there like she was 92, though, didn't she? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, and, and it's all relative, but I, you know, we talk a lot about this the young generation, the people in their 20s saving us, but. It seems like the people with the memory or the people that have lived through some things and are still here fighting uh, provide more inspiration about what we should be doing and what we owe them, you know, what we owe them. They 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 ran their leg of the race. They shouldn't still be out here running. Well, but they should be doing what they're doing, which is telling us. I mean, it's very Western to rely on children. It's silly, really, in human history. Elders shouldn't be running. But as Mother Fletcher, uh, Mother Fletcher as Mother Lee said when she opened that, moment she said hello young people and then she basically said anybody under 96 is young people to me which is the way it should be elders should be sitting somewhere talking and that's what they're doing so you spoke with mother Fl- all right so you got- <laughs> no, i'm not i'm not i'm gonna say less i just said that to say yeah, yeah, course, course, that, that that first of all you know um when we say respect your elders i think that word respect has so much more it's not just you know bowing down is not just making sure that they're good or open. It's, it's making a way for them to express the things that they need to impart on us. And they don't always have the avenues and we don't always provide that because we think we know everything. That's so, right. you know, just sitting, I, I spent most of that interview uh, quiet in, no in silence and no understanding the things that she probably couldn't say. Do you know, it's no question. Come on, Prof. Come on. Yeah, I'm still recovering from it. So let me just say it was the one, the one interview I've ever done that I've been shook by in, at my core because I didn't have the answers. I come in most of the time very sure of what I'm going to do. I had no idea what I was going to do when I got there. And I'm just like, wow, this woman lived through, through last pandemic and it, she lived through a Holocaust, uh, a decimation uh, at Black Wall Street. She remembers it to this day, can't sleep in her bed, can't sleep in a bed at 109. She sleeps sitting up. 
with her legs up because she said she got to stay ready. She said she got to stay ready, Dr. Carr, at 109. I'm like, yeah. if she got to stay ready, what we doing? What yeah. what we doing? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then, the, first, yeah. the first year of World War One. Yes. Born in the Charles yes. Young got on his horse and rode from Ohio to Washington, D.C. She was a lot. She breathed the same air as Colonel Charles Young. Come on. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, her family escaped in a horse and buggy. Yes. You know, so I'm thinking cars, you know. Which is memorialized, albeit with a boy instead of a girl, in Watchmen. Mm. You see the little boy, they get out in the horse and butt. People have to understand, I mean, and shout out to Misha Green. And I mean, shout out to all the showrunners who, who did, of course, Lovecraft Country, but shout out to the showrunners who have the sense to study. Because we don't even know sometimes we're watching stuff. Some of that stuff's not accidental. Right. Yeah, that's the, you didn't make that up. You may change the characters, you may introduce, but the gist of it, when she says she can't sleep in it, come on now. What's our responsibility there? I understand. You said you were shook, huh? <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, and and humbled because yeah, she, you know, it's like time traveling. I keep saying, you know, she breathed air, you know, like it she carries, you know, this momentum of memory that we only talk about. We talk about it in terms of centuries and thousands of years, but this woman has literally lived through time. No question. Mother Lee lived through time. I mean, 96. Booker Washington was there in Tulsa. And, you know, Mother Fletcher was there in the in the in the community. Du Bois. I mean, everybody, Harriet Tubman only made transition in 1912, two years before she was born. I mean, so yeah, I mean, we 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 owe them. This is the true debt. We started talking about reparations. The first, as we said in in, in Alvazar's in Nubia, uh, interdependent healing is the first debt. No one can repair us. We have to repair ourselves. And, and, and it begins with that. It's not about, like you said, oh, we do that. I mean, of course, now, of course, Mother Fletcher, unlike us, is a Ghanaian citizen. She has a passport. <laughs> she has options. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, and, but, but who's to say all of us couldn't? But my point is that when they speak, we have to listen. So it's it's very Western to turn to a child. And, and this isn't in any way to diminish the work of people like Greta Thunberg, for example, who just graduated. So now she says, I'm going to keep showing up at Parliament to protest, but it's no longer the student protest. No, beautiful. You should do that. But uh, we while you're doing that, let's go find the elders. Because, you know, they've been your age. You've never been their age. Right. And, I mean, we, and we dismiss the people who marched and who who uh, got beaten as, you know, somehow weak because they, you know, I mean, M Mother Fletcher didn't go to school, you know, because she was rendered homeless and then had to share crop to feed the family, had to work picking cotton and things. And you think about her teaching herself to read from, from the almanac. And I'm like, why? Because I, I needed to know how to read and write to survive in this world. And there are people that don't even want to pick up a book. And this woman and her brother, her baby brother, who was literally a baby, Come on. Uh, taught themselves to read. He fought for a country that he came back to and had to sit at the back of the bus. He fought in World War II. He was in those, uh, what they call those African campaigns. And uh, I think about him going over to Africa now as a hundred year old, as a centenarian, you know, not fighting, but being liberated with a passport, with with citizenship in a, in a country that, you know, I mean, it's just, this is a particular time as we uh, go into this Juneteenth weekend. And um, I've been resistant to it, but every time I see Opal Lee, mother Opal Lee, I have to shut my mouth and put straw in it because uh, she, knows, 
she fought for something. Whether I agree that the rest of the nation should have a day off, which I don't. I think all y'all should go to work. Who did not have ancestry that worked in the field and were enslaved two years after they okay. freed themselves? You know, like it, it's a weird, it's a it's a weird thing to have a Juneteenth federal holiday in a country so devoted to um, not freedom. Let me say it that way. It's weird. Absolutely, and to be. Uh... It's difficult. I mean, and these are the pain, these are the difficult conversations that we, out of our own um, perhaps timidity, for some people, perhaps cowardice, for many people, simply because we don't know how to bring to speech the feelings we have. These are the conversations we too often surrender to our elders. If we were fully anchored in our ways of knowing, in our governance formations. And there are spaces where we are fully anchored in them. Typically, they are very close family, close community, where we do, in fact, know the unfettered elders. But in these broader conversations and the social structures we inherit, certainly in this country, we very rarely see an elder, a non-white elder, an elder that might be clustered as Asian as we wait probably next week, the affirmative action decision from the Supreme Court, an elder who might be First Nations, indigenous, who some people will call Native Americans, which is, as far as I'm concerned, an insult. Don't put Americans on them. They were not Americans. They are not Americans in that sense. We saw the ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act case, uh, the Brackeen case delivered, uh, which was surprising and then unsurprising because a little country is falling apart. But we rarely see indigenous elders speak. We rarely see Asian elders speak. We rarely, rarely see African elders speak in that broader social public. What happened on the South Lawn of the White House on Tuesday night was that the country and the world got to see a glimpse of a conversation that we are very used to hearing from our elders when it's just us in the governance formations. And it was only a glimpse. I suspect when we hear you in conversation with Mother Fletcher, we'll get a broader glimpse. And I also suspect that had Mother Fletcher, Mother Lee, Mother Fletcher's brother, any of those elders been simply in a conversation with just us, it would have been even more of a glimpse because we're not comfortable saying what we really think <laughs> in this space because it is dangerous, as you say. To that, um, and this was something that was a revelation to me because um, well, I know we're going to have a broader conversation today about Juneteenth. No, no, no. Which, this is the conversation we're having. She said, um, after they escaped uh, the decimation of their entire town, mm. uh, they mm. didn't have to be in one of those concentration camps. They they made it to another uh, city and were homeless, you know, and, you know, had to live off the land, which they knew how to do. Yes. And then they started getting work in the very homes of the people. Well, that up, but before you go on, what you just said, we shouldn't gloss that too quickly, which they knew how to do. We saw the story last week in Colombia, those children, those indigenous children who survived that plane crash. The reason they were able to survive in the jungle until they were found was because their elders had trained them what roots you could eat, what seeds you could eat. In other words, they survived because they had knowledge on how to survive. So I didn't, I just didn't want you to, oh. want people to miss what you just said. They survived because they, they were taught to how to survive. Anyway, I just wanted to make, before they, before you got to the point, but go ahead, please. No, and, and as they were, you know, getting back on their feet, they had to go clean homes of the very people that destroyed 
their entire community. And we're told if you say anything, if you tell anyone, which is why we're just now hearing the whole story, the grandson was like, you know, he would stay with his grandmother and she would, you know, have nightmares. She wouldn't sleep in a bed. He was like, what is going on? You know, you know, grandkids, you know, oh, y'all don't know nothing, but you, you know, granny, what's happening here? Right. Why and you she would, for, granny? Some yeah. of y'all know some elders that don't sleep in beds. In fact, there are moments when I don't sleep in a bed. I saw that growing up, but you model what you see. Some elders don't sleep in beds. There are various reasons, but yeah, but but this one is the most poignant. This was specific, right? And and so as, he, as she, he's questioning her, she wouldn't tell him because she had the fear that, that everybody was told, if you tell anyone, we're going to kill you and your whole family. So the reason why the, the decimation of Black Wall Street wasn't a national story that went, you know, viral back then, because things did go viral, why everyone didn't know why Demario Solomon Simmons going to school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, didn't learn about it, is because the, the, the fear of death was instilled in every survivor, that if you say something, we're going to kill your family. So she didn't want her family to be killed. So you think about that even... It, it, the psych the psychology of telling people if you say something we're going to kill you and that fear that uh is paralyzing and and allows for the broken memory right so sure. i wonder also how many other stories didn't get told we know we lost languages we know native americans lost languages we know kill the indian save the man we we know that this is kind of the the way not just that you colonize you take land but you steal whole generations through memory through through knowledge of self and and all of the the things the valuable things that we need to know if you tell anyone we're, we're gonna kill you i'm like wow you know like none of us are under the threat of death to tell the truth well uh, uh, when, when you saw it i was listening yesterday uh to minneapolis public radio our friend and comrade angie porter was on they had her on it's funny the commentator said angie you've been with us since May 2020, since the thing really went down. And she has, she, she's been a constant resume because you know they released the report. And with all due yeah. respect to what Al Sharpton says about Ben Crump being America's attorney general, yeah, I, I'm, I vote for Kristen Clark. But at any rate, because yesterday, listening after Mary Garland and Vanita Gupta, who's doing Helen Crowbar work, when Kristen Clark stood to the microphone, they released that long report, as we know, yesterday about, and, and Angie came on after uh, Keith Ellison. She and Keith Ellison actually were commenting on it. And she drew our attention to, I think it's the eighth finding in the written report. And everybody can download it and read it. It's 59, it? how many pages is it? Like 60 some pages. Maybe that's the executive summary. But she talked about how, um, first of all, this consent decree that the uh, Department of Justice and federal government has entered into with the city of Minneapolis does not apply to where Philando Castile was killed. That was in St. Paul. doesn't apply to where Jamar Clark. I know, in other words, it, it's, just, it's just that municipality. But what the point Angie was making was is that nothing in that report is new to us. We are under constant threat for our lives. If a police stops us, this. If, so the things that were revealed, people saying, this is shocking. It ain't shocking to us at all. None of us are safe. And what is what? But what is striking about this report is in page after page, incident after incident, what you see is black people giving voice to the to this larger social structure, the things we encounter every day. You see a police car in your rearview mirror immediately. Your life is in danger. Don't pretend like it's not. Read that report about these people on the streets in North Minneapolis. You know, and tell the people exactly. So, so the Department of Justice yesterday released a, I think it's a fifty-nine page report. Merrick Garland, uh, I played a clip from him. Uh, that uh, discovered that the police department 
<laughs> Minneapolis is corrupt and <laughs> shocking is corrupt and wrought with racism and uh and and also gave uh voice to what needs to happen for it to change but i was like this could be cut and pasted to just about every municipality in this country like this shouldn't be you know this should be the blueprint you know how they apac gives you know legislation to our congress people in the republican party to here's your here are the laws this should be cut and pasted and given to every police department in the country that's right in fact that in fact i'm so glad you said it because that's exactly what she said oh, it, okay. it. i mean y'all y'all the same in other words right. this should be done but 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 of course in listening to the press conference and in listening to the interpretation and the analysis what thing angie said was of the recommendations of what should be done the shortest one was the one that dealt with reforming the police department by dealing with the officers that serve. She said, she said, you know why it's the shortest one? It's the shortest one because it's the hardest one. And she said, you know, because uh, both uh, attorney uh, general um, and um, Keith Ellison, yeah, Keith Ellison, both, both, both uh, Keith Ellison and uh, Angie Porter were asked, Professor Porter were asked about the current force. And one of the things Angie said was, because, you know, I mean, Ellison is the attorney general for the state. So there's only so much he going to say in that governance formation. But what Angie said was, you know, because she was a prosecutor in the city of Minneapolis. I mean, she served as a prosecutor. So she knows, she has testified, she has, she has seen cops on the stand do things that Merrick Garland and Vanita Gupta and Kristen Clark and their, and their staff documented in the report. We know y'all be lying on the stand. We know when people call, there are certain calls you take and don't take. We know that in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, what y'all did in terms of slowdowns, and this is the one she really emphasized. She said, I, I saw the waves of resignations. So when you start talking about changing policing in Minnesota or the or the country for that matter, she said it's going to be very critical to watch because she said in Minneapolis the new police chief and all this, she said because uh, the, the 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 reporter asked her she said you know do you think that these police will conform to this they'll they'll embrace this she said many of the police who wouldn't already quit. So pay attention to the residents. So in other words, if you're out there saying, I will never be no cop, or if you're out there saying, I don't know what I'm going to do after high school, it's your chance in Minnesota. Just like Florida is telling all the white nationalists to come down there and rally. If you want to be in law enforcement and you really want to transform law enforcement, you might take a look at Minneapolis right now because there are a lot of vacancies. And not just Minneapolis. We're seeing this all over the country. These people, if now we can organize, we can put these people on the run a little bit. That's the force she was made. It's time for you to get that job. Come on, Prof. Talk to us. I'm not to see it on your face. I mean, you know, I, I talk to my blue until I'm blue in the face, and I'll keep talking. I won't shut up. But you know, it's like it's all strategy, right? Yes. If you live somewhere, why not mobilize your folk to control the police, the fire, all of the things that you need to have your people. Um, I, I do I try to do that every place I go secretly. Shh, don't say nothing, but you know, I surround <laughs> myself with my people. My students are everywhere. No <laughs> I sprinkle them every place. MSNBC, there's Karen Hunter students there too. There's, you know, because that's my tribe of folk that I've, I've touched. I got my fingerprints on. So I know what they're, where they're coming from. And they also, you know, come back, tell me stuff when things I need to know things, you know. You know, they may be in department. People don't know. But we have to be, because you know them white nationalists are sprinkled throughout government and in every, you know, it's no... Coincidence, you show up for a parking ticket and the entire people who are paying the tickets are black in a white neighborhood. That's not a coincidence. I've been there. I was like, this town don't have no black people in, but everybody in court is black. How is this possible? How? 
We know how, right? They're not taking their grandma and pop pop and uncles and friends, you know, oh, go ahead. You've seen that. Oh, slow down. No. Oh, next time. Don't, don't take that next drink. I'm not bringing you in. Not bringing you in. Us? Well, yeah, we're getting yeah, brought man. in. So. I mean, one, one, one instance in the report and then in the interviews, cop says, I'm testifying that I smelled marijuana. Okay, what was the form of marijuana? It was in a backpack, in a baggie, and it was unburnt. Now, hell, did you smell? You didn't smell. No I mean, the whole point is, they're not stopping you, and then we get to arguing about the, the, the pretense. How could you? No, 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 no. They stopped you because they was going to stop you. And they just make it up, right? right. Said, oh, you, got, you have an air freshener because that's code number, distracted, obstructive view. They're going to find a reason. They're going to find a reason. But but the reasons are, look, we all know it's very, uh, the thing we can't do is disengage because our people are in harm's way. I know y'all talked about uh, our brother Cornell West running for president. And I, I chuckled to myself because Cornell not running for president. Well, I mean, would Jesus Christ run for emperor? My point is this, you know, running acknowledges that we we live in a system, in a social structure. Prophets don't run for president. Martin Luther King would never have run for it. So people are saying, well, Cornel West is selling us out because he's not, he's running for president. Or people are saying, I'm glad he's running. I'm going to vote for him. Don't even get caught up in that. Understand that we live in a system which requires us to engage. And whatever that engagement looks like, what you can't do is withdraw. So, I mean, do you really think that this sister from Rochester, Minnesota, who, where they've been celebrating Juneteenth for decades, for longer than that, really wanted to be the police in uh, in, in Minneapolis? No. Angie went to law school. She clerked for federal judges. She read, and she found herself doing that work because the, the, the big money firm she was in had a pro bono thing because they don't want to get thrown out on their ass. So she volunteered. And now she in the city prosecutor office for. Uh, in, so when you see them, when you see the TV show Law and Order, she's the order part. <laughs> but wouldn't you rather have her as the prosecutor so she could tell the cops? No, we're not charging this one. I can't. No, no, no. It's me. I'm the lawyer. You take your arresting ass back out there on the street and try, and then when you bring them here, I'm gonna let them go. In other words, yes, you gotta have people everywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, I titled this uh, "What Is Juneteenth to the Negro?" I don't know. I, you know, I'm thinking about you know Frederick Douglass because that's around the corner. Nope. And um, you you uh, you want us to open with Mother Lee, which I thought was very poignant. And I, I'm just for everybody. We've talked about Juneteenth for the last couple of Juneteenths. This and, is, and we have them in the archive. Y'all should go back for the details. Yes. Yes. yes, you know, but I wanted to know, you know, how we should navigate this. To me, I feel like it was a bone thrown, right? Of course. And and we talked about this too. I said this window, this George Floyd guilt window, is going to close quickly. It has closed. It Diversity closed. and inclusion. Now all of these departments are shutting down. People losing their jobs. All of the, you know, we just saw a white lady sue for discrimination and get twenty five million dollars. Starbucks, right? No question. A jury, right? Because there's a backlash. Like Obama gets elected, when people are like, oh, what? This can happen. Backlash starts. You know, George Floyd, all the money. Everybody giving money. HBCUs and everything. White people big mad. Why they get the money? And then there's a backlash, right? So we're in the backlash period of of the summer of George Floyd, and and now the cases like what happened in Minnesota, oh, they're taking over our country. You know, we're we're getting this, and now we're heading into an election. So I'm, I'm saying that this this is poignant. We have to be more vigilant than ever, and not distracted. So I don't want to argue whether Juneteenth is valid or not because it's here. 
but but we should you know i guess right right so how should we be engaging with the holiday uh i'm not i'm gonna be on the radio with dr daniel black for three hours because i feel like that's the best use of time for me on juneteenth but um, yes well let's let's take a moment and think about that prof together summer starts this week in the northern hemisphere the solstice is the 21st um and for everybody who's a father out there you know, happy Father's Day, whatever that ritual is, it isn't. And the running joke is the fathers don't get the same shine as the mothers. But if we take these moments to reinforce the fact that we don't separate fathers and mothers, even as we know they are distinct duties often, this is a moment for us to celebrate and to, you know, bring the family together. So, you know, pop, pop, you know, daddy, you know, granddad, uh, unk, everybody, you know, happy. That having been said, um, it's the solstice. The summer solstice, longest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, the 21st, lines up. And that's officially summer. As, as you said, Prof, we go back and look at our two years worth of conversations, this being the third one around Juneteenth. And realizing that last year's conversation, you know, came in the wake of the um, legislation that was signed. And thanks to our sister, Ajua Batoyazmoa, you know, who said, why don't you come watch this play piece of paper getting signed? He said, okay, yeah, I'll come watch it. Um, I was there in in the White House to see that, standing with some of the police, White House police, uh, Capitol Police and Secret Service, everybody in the room. And I'm standing there with a couple of the sisters and brothers, and one of the sisters just happened to be from Texas. I said, what do you think about this? And she said, hey, we've been doing this all the time. It's It's our ritual. And it can never be anything uh, without that being the first thing. And the the clip that you played from Mother Lee there on the South Lawn at the White House. Again, odds were working her magic. We were there. There's a few of us got the chance to go. So I'm sitting there with Dr. Beatty, Mario Beatty, and Dr. Watkins, Lee Watkins. We sitting there, and Oz was sitting there. And I, you know, I'm standing most of the time. I like walking around. There's a lot of people there. And when she said, we are the most powerful country in the United States, I just laughed. <laughs> because did she misspeak at 96? No. Nope. I don't think so. But whether she did or didn't doesn't matter. Because it came out of her mouth. And I'm sure virtually everyone there thought, oh, okay, she means the world. But of course, I'm listening with a governance ear. Which means whether she did mean we're the most powerful country or not. I'm not listening with the same ear that many people are listening for, because I'm very clear that this isn't a nation. A nation, generally speaking, has a common, not only language, but a common culture or a common set of memories, which they may fight over, but ultimately they're common people. There's no such thing in the United States of America. And folk who say that there is such a thing, hey, come on over to office hours on Monday nights and meet with you. Let's talk about it, because uh, we're going to spend some time on the actual Juneteenth holiday on Monday, talking about Juneteenth and read a common piece and, and have conversation. But when she ended her remarks, and I'm only making this comparison because many people are familiar with this, uh, this overhyped speech from the social structure in the United States of America history, Lincoln's Gettysburg address. Mother Opal Lee's address was much shorter even than Lincoln's address, which was written on the back of a piece of paper and delivered at the Gettysburg battlefield in Pennsylvania. 
Am I comparing Oprah Lee to Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, I guess I am. Huh? Am I comparing uh, what she said in about less than two minutes to what Abraham Lincoln said in cotton by maybe twice that time, a little bit closer to three times that time? Yeah, I am. And am I saying of the two that you can talk about distinguishing between the mystic cords of memory and the sacrifice of the last measure of human of human devotion, which is what Lincoln is saying on a battlefield where they still find their bodies and bones. And saying that the spilled blood here ties this together as a nation with Opal Lee saying we are the most powerful country in the United States and then ending her remarks by saying, and if we don't get something together, we're all going to hell in a handbasket, at which point the vice president, oh, this ain't the family reunion, Nana. <laughs> this ain't the Juneteenth homecoming at the church, Nana. <laughs> She's 96 years old. We're going to hell in a handbasket. Wait, wait, wait. Mm -mm. Hold on, social structure. We're very happy you're the vice president. It's very nice. Nice to see you. In fact, I was there when Mother Opalee, again, me and I was walking into the White House. We're coming along the walkway there by the Rose Garden that M Melania Trump messed up. So when I was over there Tuesday night, I'm like, is, is the Rose Garden restored? And that's the, that's the one she turned into the brutalist style, right? But we're, we're there. Simone Sanders comes walking up with the vice president. And I, I, I witnessed that meeting the first time that the vice president of the United States met Mother Opalee who they were pushing in a wheelchair, not because she can't walk, as you just saw, but because it's easier when you're going longer distances. We all came in through security together. But I said all that to say that, you know, while we need people everywhere, Mother Opalee is, is speaking out of a governance formation to a larger social structure. And as she stood there behind the podium, where the vice president, and then at the end of the night, the president of the United States, his daughter spoke from, she has a moment to speak to everybody. Hello, young people. And then she dropped the Curtis Mayfield line. If there's hell below, we're all going to go. At which point, ah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and then and as she walked away, vice president was like, hey, you know, who can follow that? Who can follow that? Who can't? This is the program from that evening. You know, you say less, got the seal. You know, President of the United States. Well, yes, it's President Dr. Biden invite you to the Juneteenth concert, Tuesday, June 13, 2023. Uh, you know, on media and media, they projected that people who will be uh, at the thing that will be singing and performing include Method Man, Clint Smith, Method Man. I'm like, Cliff, rather Method Man Smith. I'm like, what he gonna do? He can't do none of his songs. Uh, <laughs> is he gonna do cream? I mean, is he bringing out the woo? I'm saying, you gonna go by itself, M-E-T-H-O-D. You do know what method means, right? But, uh, but, <laughs> He was the MC, so I thought, okay, I see. And he only came out once at the beginning. I said, I see how y'all did it. It was cool, though. It was cool. I was like, hmm, hmm. What's wrong, Pro? Cool, man. Wait, wait, no, I'm... come on now. Come on. Hey, look, look. Hey, y'all. Juneteenth, between Juneteenth and the Fourth of July, Pro, we're getting ready to. Re we are redefining this American conversation. They didn't mean to do this. Shout out, by the way, not shout out. Respect. 
to the ancestor Ahmaud Arbery, their ancestor Breonna Taylor, and the ancestor Big George Floyd, because that's where there is a national holiday. They was looking for anything to slow the momentum down of that revolution in 2020. So I'm just saying, but now that it's here, I think this little quarter right here has the potential to open up all kinds of it stuff. It does. <laughs> the ability, our ability to swallow hypocrisy and, and follow it with a chaser, you know, is... I think a superpower and the thing that will destroy us. And I ask, I'm, I'm wondering mm. to, your point, to your point just now about, you know, they threw us this bone, um, forgot who said it in, in Nubia. You know, you throw a bone to a dog when you're trying to rob a house, you know, oh. keep the dog occupied, right? Okay. And you, know, you know, are we allowing that? You know, how much, uh, did, did it work? Did it work? Did this bone work is my question. And so, no? No, it can't work. Okay. But no, go. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, walk through saying? it. I want. I want to know what you think. Well, what, what I'm saying is that 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 it can't work because who we are always overflows the boundaries. I see you, Bob Adesanya. You said I went behind enemy lines for some. Yeah, recon. Hey, look, we were standing. We were sitting in the back laughing because you know I walked all the way up and down. Right? You know, saw a few Congress people. Uh, Al Green, of course, who was from Texas. Uh, and his brother, Al Edwards, of course, who was in the Texas state legislature, who pushed through Juneteenth in 1979 as a state holiday in Texas. And again, go back to the archive to see our two conversations on Juneteenth. But every year it's going to be different because we won't walk through all the history today. And there's been plenty of that. I mean, I've been doing I haven't been doing anything but, you know, media conversations about that, that this past week. But among many others, everybody's doing it. So we can talk about that. Um, in fact, let me just pause for 30 seconds. Again, Juneteenth marks June 19th, 1865, when General Gordon Granger, and we talked about that, I won't get, even go get the books, uh, dispatches his deputy to read in Galveston, Texas, General Order Number 3, which says, basically, uh, African people are free uh, by virtue of the edict of the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, which was made uh, formal in a military sense with the surrender of robert e lee to ulysses s grant at appomattox courthouse down the street here in arlington virginia that was of course april 1865 but texas had no intention of as as my man gerald horn writes and i would encourage everybody if you want one juneteenth book although as we know and we'll talk about a chapter from this book on monday night in nubia um old freedom wiggins book uh, and I think Uraeus posted last year the, to the two-volume dissertation that uh, Wiggins wrote, uh, William Wiggins wrote, called Oh Freedom. And um, I, do, I do usually show that one, but I'm not going to get into the history of Juneteenth. Again, go back to the archive. But I'm mentioning it because um, Gerald Horn's book, if you want to look at the context, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism, one of, if not the best single book on it, because this book, this 600 page book that he wrote while in COVID details how Texas saw itself as a rogue country then and now in some ways, the Lone Star country, now Lone Star State. And they hadn't been a state for about 20 years. So when they declared, when they declared the end of the Civil War in the East, in Virginia, in the West, the Confederates are fleeing, as Gerald writes about, they're fleeing to Texas to regroup. They're going to continue that Civil War. And they're going to continue it, not just from Texas, but also Mexico, which plays an equal, if not larger role in this, because the French had been fighting back and forth to colonize Texas and they had the upper hand in 1865. Maximilian was the emperor the French had installed. And that's why uh, Gerald talks about the two Juneteenths, not just June 19th, 1865, 
but June 19, 1866, when the Mexicans capture and execute Maximilian and retain control of Mexico, because remember, Mexico had outlawed enslavement, which is one way, one, uh, which is one reason why when they celebrate the 5th of May, which marked a Mexican army defeat of the French uh, army at a place called Puebla, the Battle of Puebla, Cinco de Mayo, they would link to the Emancipation Proclamation, wasn't just a drinking holiday. No, the, the Mexicans were anti-slavery. So, you know, when you cheering for Davy Crockett and, and, and Jim Bowie and them against Santa Ana, you might consider switching sides at the Alamo in San Antonio. When we talked about that, uh, the book, Forget the Alamo, that we showed. But anyway, I won't get too deep into this. Let me end with this. After 1865, of course, you see African people preserving this ritual. It's so funny. I was, um, let me see here. I was looking at some Juneteenth stuff because obviously in talking about Juneteenth, and I, I was trying to think about some things that we talked about that we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about before last week. I mean, last year. <clears throat> and I don't think I brought any of those books in here, which is which is just as well. Um, hmm, that's interesting. I thought I brought those books in here, but I did not. Um, I'm thinking about the work of, among others, John Brewer, J. J. Mason Brewer, the black folklorist in Texas. And oh, wait, here's one of them. Yeah, this isn't what I was thinking about. Prof, I heard you mention a few months ago, one of the Texas folklorists. And I thought about it because the, the person he learned from, this happened to be a white Texas folklorist. J. Mason Brewer, the brother, uh, wrote a little pamphlet on Juneteenth, which I ran, have around here somewhere, but I showed this one last year, I think. But as people found out about the end of enslavement, as Gerald writes, some of those people already knew. Because remember, after they win the war in the East, they're coming West. They cross the Mississippi. Granger is there after Philip Sheridan and all them, the army of the, the West. They cross the Mississippi. And so everywhere they go, they're spreading the message that the war is over. And so that's why as, as Wiggins uh, documents in his book, Old Freedom, I did with it, but that's all right. Come to Nubia Monday night. We're going to talk about this. And we talked about it last year and the year before. Wiggins talks about the fact that these rituals, these Freedom Day, these Emancipation Day celebrations were already seated in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Louisiana. They're coming West and they're coming West with the black soldiers, the black soldiers who were in the Civil War to the tune of 189,000, 10,000 of them being in the Union Navy. These are the USCT, the colored troops that we talked about when we were over in uh, Ohio a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, at Martin Delaney's grave and Catherine Delaney's grave, Massey's Creek Cemetery. So Juneteenth is more symbolic than anything else because the emancipation struggle that began when the first person put their hands on us in Africa just continued up until 1861 to 65 in the United States, the so-called Civil War. And as Africans are freeing themselves as early as the first skirmishes of the Civil War, it's just spreading West. And it's also coming from West back toward East. It's anywhere African people are emancipating themselves, as W.E.B. Du Bois writes about in Black Reconstruction in America. So if you can imagine in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Louisiana, it's not June 19th. It might be in May. It might be in May the previous year. There are rituals that are celebrated on different days, September. For the people in the Northeast in particular, 
the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation by Abe Lincoln, which gave the states that had us enslaved four months to come back into the Union. And Lincoln said, you can keep them enslaved. Because remember, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free anybody. The four states where slavery was legal, including Maryland, including Delaware, including Kentucky, those states were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. So once he puts out the preliminary pro uh, proclamation in 1862, this is where our dear friend and brother and the man, Lerone Bennett Jr., in his book, Forced Into Glory, he's not the only one to do it, but he is a Lincoln, he is Omar to Lincoln. Omar coming. <laughs> so at any rate, the Lincoln people still mad at Lerone Bennett because he's in the ancestral realm laughing at them. But the point is, he's a Lincoln ain't free nobody. The Emancipation Proclamation, the end of December, the last night of December, your mama and them and your daddy, your cousin, your uncle and them on their knees praying in Philadelphia, in New York and places like that, in the watch night service. And then they get up off their knees January 1st, 1863, or the Emancipation now is supposed to be enforced, right? Yeah. Give me a gun, baby. Why? Because I'm going to stick it on the end of this bayonet and go stick it down the throat of a Confederate soldier. So we marching through the South, right? The, the sons of Fred Douglas and Martin Delaney. Harriet Tubman in the Combahee River. And I mean, you know, Sojourner Truth out there at the camp, which becomes Arlington National Cemetery, the Freedman's Village, where we were a couple of weeks ago. Across the river in Virginia, uh, you have, of course, Harriet Brent, well, Linda Brent, uh, who is over there in the Freedman's Village in Alexandria. So we're freeing ourselves. By the time it gets to Texas, you got to understand, the Texans, the white Texans, were not going to give up. So, as I said, I was going to end with this. I'm going to end here. Yeah, you can read a piece of paper on the 15th, I'm sorry, on the 19th of June, 1865. But what good is that paper if you don't have an army to back it up? So, Gerald documents case after case after case of Africans in Texas who did not hear about it because the military didn't reach them until a year or two years or three years after 1865. So, you had African people who were, all for all intents and purposes, enslaved after 1865. This is important when we start talking about the national memory, because now that this is a federal holiday, it's going to be a lot of revision, not even revisionist history, because most people don't know the history at all. It's going to be a lot of lying. And some of it's going to be very deliberate and some of it's going to be very lazy. And as in the case of the Fletchers and in uh, Tulsa, it isn't that we didn't tell the stories. It's that we don't take the time to study how we pass this memory down from generation to generation to generation. When you combine that with the deliberate erasure, then it is very easy to say that this history was lost. But it was lost in part because we stopped listening to ourselves to the degree that we should always listen to ourselves, which is why even the book bans in Florida and other places, these white nationalists talk about banning books. I'm saying the banning books must be fought. We got to fight on all fronts. Absolutely. You can't ban books. You can't take books out. You can't say uh, that because a white child, some, a passage is assigned from Tanasi Coates' Between the World and Me and some white student says, hey, we can't be talking about this. Next thing you know, you take that book. Uh, you can't do that. But I am more concerned, quite frankly, as we fight those overt bans. I'm more concerned with the shadow ban. Oh, the shadow ban is much worse. Why? What is the shadow ban? The shadow ban is when you got a book in the library, but you won't check it out. When you got a book at your house, but you won't read it. When your focus to read book, as Jonathan Harry says, it's been stolen. When you scrolling and they're going to book right there, but you can't see the book. That's the shadow ban. What good is a book if it ain't ever going to be read? What good is a newspaper if it's never going to be read? A newspaper like the Oklahoma Eagle. The Oklahoma Eagle, which, of course, 
is uh, Ed Green, uh, Ed Goodwin and his family. Ed Goodwin moved to Tulsa in 1914. His family moved to Tulsa in 1914. That's the year Mother Fletcher was born. He started a newspaper. The Tulsa massacre was documented there. And it was not only the Tulsa massacre, uh, the, 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 the urban removal of Africans in the 1970s, the rebuilding of Black Wall Street and all that community in the wake of the destruction in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And then they come and put a highway through and wipe it out again. But they're still fighting. All that stuff's documented in the Black press in Oklahoma. But if you're not going to read the paper, it's like they never documented it. And then people come along and say, see, that's why Karen Hunter and Mother Fletcher talking is very important because she got a book coming out July 4th. Don't let them bury my story because I'm here, which means my story is unbroken. But not only am I here, when you see me, you see the governance formations in Oklahoma. Those stories were never not told, many of them. Yes, they were suppressed by the social structure. You ain't going to find them in the white press. You're not going to find them in the white television states. But what you will find them in is African people using our science and technology, which includes print technology. Why do I bring it up? Because the granddaughter of Ed Goodwin, Regina Goodwin, is a member of the Oklahoma legislature. She fighting with both fists, representing the Greenwood District. And if you want to read the unbroken history of from before the destruction of Black Wall Street to today, year by year, decade by decade, generation by generation, the young brother Victor Luckerson just wrote the book, Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street, 100 years in the neighborhood that refused to be erased. Put this on the list. You know, I'm sure y'all will be talking, brother Luckerson, young cat. In fact, let me just show you his picture because see, I love it when we write these stuff to we. He's a journalist and author based in Tulsa. There he is, Victor Luckerson. You're the brother right there. Yeah, let's, let's talk to that brother because he talked to everybody he could. He based there. So I'm saying all that to say that Juneteenth lived out of the governance formation, which Wiggins does an incredible job of documenting in his book, Oh Freedom, which I keep looking around. And, <laughs> there it is. There it is. Oh Freedom, Afro-American Emancipation Celebrations. William H. Wiggins Jr. That's enough because it's based on his dissertation and y'all can go back and look in the archive. But in other words, there's an unbroken string of these celebrations. There's celebrations, there are rituals that involve family reunions, they involved homecoming, they involved all the stuff we talked about. Again, I keep saying I'm not going to go through that. So I'm going to pause here with this and end it with this. This is a book called Blacks in East Texas History. Uh, a collection of articles that were published from 1962 forward in the East Texas Historical Journal. Again, just add this to the list because we didn't, I didn't talk about this one last year because there's stuff I'm moving around. I'm, I'm finding stuff that I thought was in storage, although most of my stuff is still in storage. Um, there's an article here called Black Texans During Reconstruction, First Freedom, James Smallwood. Smallwood says this, for some freedmen, joy replaced temporary confusion after they heard this news in June. 1865. Blacks turned many plantations into scenes of jubilation and alternatively sang, danced, prayed. Some became overjoyed simply because they believed freedom meant, quote, no more whippings. Let's sit in that for a minute. Is that the definition of freedom? No more whippings? In Minnesota, with this consent decree entered into by the Minneapolis state, city of Minneapolis and the police and the Justice Department, does freedom from oppression from the police mean no more police stops? First of all, it doesn't. Second of all, the whippings in Texas continued until somebody put a stop to it. 
sometimes the people who were being whipped, which meant just like before the end of quote unquote enslavement, sometimes people took that whip and beat their, well, I'm not gonna talk about that. We can go, there are a lot of documented cases of everybody just didn't take an ass whooping. But it doesn't mean, but think about the narrow definition of freedom. I mean, freedom means the freedom not to get stopped by the police, not to get shot by the police, not to get beat up by the police, not for the police to get, get away, not for your name to be on a t-shirt because you did. That's what freedom means to me, really. He continues and says, the reaction of Harriet, a domestic slave hired out to Amelia Barr of Austin, perhaps typified that of many African-Americans. After the local sheriff read Granger's proclamation, Amelia informed Harriet that she was free. Afterwards, Harriet, quote, darted to her child and throwing it high, shrieked hysterically, Tamar, you are free. You're free, Tamar. She did not at that supreme moment think of herself. Freedom was for her child. She looked it in the face, at its hands, at its feet. It was a new baby to her, a free baby. This is somebody commenting on a black woman telling her baby, you free. But in that moment, what the commentator says is, she not thinking about herself, she's thinking about her child. In many ways, freedom for African people in an oppressive, funky settler project like the United States of America often becomes an investment in the dream that our children will live a life that we won't live. Let me pause here because I think that is the origin and that is the sentiment behind, not the origin, that's the sentiment behind this I am my ancestors' wildest dreams phrase, which I think is, is so silly. It's a silly thing, but it's but it's also very understandable because that silliness is born of an assaulted memory. It's what my friend and brother uh, Chike Okua, quoting Malimu Shuja, our elder, who wrote a edited a book called "Too Much Schooling, Too Little Education." And I was with uh, brother Chike. We were together on uh, well, virtually on I guess was that Tuesday. I've lost track now. Uh, Florida International University had a Juneteenth celebration, and um, Chike was on it. And Chike mentioned Shuja. And by the way, uh, <laughs> I should I, I should pause here in a minute, but I, I, I'll save that for a second because I need to uh, uh, remember the exact phrasing of how it was discussed. But uh, Chike talks about Shuja saying diseducation. And you know what happens when you're diseducated? When you are diseducated, you will often substitute, you, you will be so convinced that you don't have uh, historical memory and historical agency that you will ultimately embrace being miseducated. In fact, you'll say, I don't want to learn all that stuff. I don't want to know about all that stuff. It'll become a situation where you say to yourself, eh, yeah, why we got to talk about all this slavery? Why we got to talk about Africa? Why we got to talk about this? I don't want to learn all that. He, he, he calls it diseducation. He said miseducation will lead to diseducation. You won't even want to learn the thing that you thought Perhaps one at one time you should know. And I think that's what we see when people say, you know, we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. We're not our ancestors' wildest dreams. Let me see if I can find this very quickly because I wanted to uh to give credit to the folks who were ah, uh, here we go. Here we go. Let me let me do this very quickly. Because Florida International did a great job. And I wanna I wanna give them credit for it. The Juneteenth Freedom Day. In fact, they have a Freedom Day celebration today uh down at eh, let me see if i can find it they have a freedom celebration today if so if you're out down there in uh miami at the street dotson's family pavilion 
uh, from one to five today, there's going to be a Juneteenth celebration that is taking place. Uh, let me see here. Yeah, that was, uh, and then where were we? Uh, let me see if I could find, I'm sorry, y'all, because I hadn't prepared to talk about this, but I wanted to mention it because I think it's very important that we, uh, that we do that. Okay, here we go. Yeah. So if you're down there, go to the Juneteenth Freedom Celebration. It's down there in South Florida, Florida International University. Um, they, they'll be there from one to five. But Chike mentioned that. And also uh, he and Sister Nadine Wedderburn, who is at the State University of New York, Empire State College, uh, are, are one of our colleagues. Uh, the brother who was moderating, Sean Christian, shout out to Sean Christian at Florida International University, good brother, scholar of African-American literature, among other things. At the end of the program, he said, um, could you all give us one resource, one resource that people can use to learn our history, to anchor in our history? And so before I could say anything, Dr. Wedderburn, sister of Jamaican descent, African Nubian. Hey, Doc. She said, oh, that's easy. Narrative. <laughs> I was like, what? This is not playing. I said, what? She said, oh, yeah. It's a clearinghouse. We meet there. We do this work. It's, it's got all this, and it's growing. And I said, okay. Then after that, here come Dr. Akua, Chike Akua. Uh, Reading Revolution is the thing he and his family community have done in terms of black literacy. It's very, very, very important. Uh, I think the website is Reading Revolution, if you look it up. Chike says, oh, yeah, I second that narrative. So then I came up and I said, well, Y'all should come on in the narrative then. Come on in the new year. And so, but but anyway, that conversation was important because Chike is talking about the fact that if you are miseducated for so long, you become diseducated. And that diseducation then creates a situation where our students, our young people in particular, will say they will just reject the idea of learning any of that. And so let me return finally to this Blacks in East Texas history in that context, because the idea that freedom could be shrunk to, I don't get beat or beaten. That is a narrative that will, will so narrow the notion of human possibility that it will, in fact, create a situation where you might think you're your ancestor's wildest dream. You're not your ancestor's wildest dream. We talked about that. We spent a whole session on that, you know, because your ancestors had ancestors. You think their wildest dream in a moment, your wildest dream, if you're getting beat by the police, is for the stick to stop. Your wildest dream, police say halt, is for you not to get shot. Sure. But your wildest dream is that? Don't shrink it to that. So this is what he finished. He says, this is back to the Smallwoods article. He says, like Harriet, most slave parents probably thought of their children first, wanting them to have the same benefits as slaveholders' children, schooling, attractive clothes, sufficient food, and exemption from work. Okay, see, that's expanding the definition of feeding freedom, but it's still narrow. Why? So now your imagination is you want what the people who oppressed you had. Prophet Mother Fletcher talks about having to work in those houses. One of the things that we see documented, and I think what was suppressed, what wouldn't be in the Oklahoma Eagle, what wouldn't be necessarily as quickly found in, you know, in, in our documents, but what would, 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 would be passed mouth to ear? Because I've seen some of that in the oral histories. It's when people walked into the houses of these people, it's right behind my teeth, these people who assaulted them, who killed them, who set fire to their places, who then roamed the neighborhood that had been destroyed in search of trophies. Little white children, 
taking candy out of the destroyed stores. Uh, white people taking goods and the, you know clothes or little trinkets that they could find from the places that had been bombed and set on fire. Imagine going into one of those houses to work and seeing something that used to belong to you or somebody you knew. Some things, oh, you some things are unforgivable. You see, there will there will never be peace. Let me tell y'all something. If y'all in here right now looking at this, thinking there could be some peace and healing, never. This war is forever. Please understand that. Please. Now, in things that concern our common humanity, I'm talking about climate change. I'm talking about, you know, making sure everybody has healthcare fine. But in terms of memory, one of the dangers of recovering memory is that you remember why there will never be peace. No apology can do anything about that. Restitution can certainly make a certain kind of dent. But see, here's a funny thing, Prof, about restitution. Let me see if I got today's New York Times somewhere within. Uh, yeah, here it is. Today's New York Times. Page A13. See, I love how these people destroy, try to destroy you and then wait until all your people they did it to are ancestors and then congratulate themselves for pardoning. Here, a final plight for the Philadelphia 15. Just over a year before the attack on Pearl Harbor, 15 sailors assigned to the USS Philadelphia wrote a letter to a black newspaper. Understand, if you want to understand our movement and memory, we talked about this with Brother Loeb, writing for the Call and Post of Ohio about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, a trained scientist who became a journalist. If you want to know our story, you go to our press. You go to the Oklahoma Eagle. Go on. He said that these brothers wrote to the Black Philadelphia newspaper detailing the abuse and indignities they had faced on the warship solely because of the color of their skin. When they enlisted, the Navy had promised training and assignments that would lead to advancement, but the Black sailors soon found that those opportunities did not exist for them. Huh. They were forced to be servants for the ship's officers, limited to waiting on tables and making beds and the so-called mess attendants, they wrote, for daring to speak out. They didn't hold that. They wrote to the black press. A few of these men were jailed and all of them were kicked out of the Navy with discharges that forever labeled them as unfit to serve. The plight of the group which became known as the Philadelphia 15, waited, uh, faded from public attention as World War II erupted. Did it fade from public attention? World War II erupted, and it seems to me that a brother wrote the Pittsburgh Courier and said, we're going to fight over there. We need to win over here too. And they launched the double V campaign. Did it fade? Not in the black press, not in the black community, not in the governance structure. Every week, week after week, day after day in narrative and Nubia, one of the things we continue to stress, and it was good to see Larry on the South Lawn of the White House. You know, Nia coming, say less. The point is, we talked a little bit about it. she and her husband down, down at the South Lawn of the White House. Because, you know, like you said, we got to have people everywhere. But, Larry Daniels' favorite, shout out to you, by the way. And congratulations. I saw that kind of, little bit of a conversation you had, uh, Prof, with L. Joy, our sister L. Joy Williams. Congratulations there in New York for getting that reparations bill up and through the legislature. Now they get now the real fight starts, the study and, and then what's the, what's the bill. But, you know, Larry and I were talking about that. So um, I'm just mentioning it to say that as we talk about these issues, we never stop remembering. The Double V campaign started during World War II in the Black press. The black spaces carried the memory. So now the New York Times says that it faded from memory. That's okay, because you're not the Amsterdam News. I understand why you would say that. You're not the city son or the Daily Challenge or any of those. Okay, says, um, but the injustice they faced and the stigma their discharge papers carried lived on for more than 80 years. Last paragraph I'm going to read on Friday in a ceremony at the Pentagon's Hall of Heroes. 
The social structure congratulated itself. Oh, no, that's not what they said. Sorry, let me read it straight. Four surviving mem family members of the two, of two of those men, brothers John and James Ponder, accepted a formal apology from the Navy for the racist treatment their loved ones had endured as sailors above uh, aboard the ship. So here's Marie, here's Mavis Ponder Doss, a relative of John and James Ponder. Here's Franklin Parker, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, giving family members of the Philadelphia 15 certificates showing a correction to Naval records. Uh, now that the records have been correct, here's the brother. He ain't the Secretary of the Navy. Franklin Parker, who probably asked for that assignment, said, let me do it. I'm a brother. So when he gave them this, of course, these 15 men were immediately not only brought back to life, but brought back to the ages they were. When And so what they didn't show in here is the picture of those brothers now alive walking around with a big check too and a set wait that wait oh they can't take a picture of that because these brothers are ancestors see what i love about this funky place is they slap you they kill you then they wait a few generations then they pretend to discover something that nobody remembered except all the people you did it to then they give you an apology so they can congratulate themselves on how great they are for writing this wrong but last i checked nobody's brought back to life nobody you know and then if they really showing out, they go get somebody, oftentimes a black person, but too often not a black person, to write the whole thing up and publish it with a white university press and say the untold story revealed. See, the thing about a criminal act is that it can have afterlives. So that's, as far as I'm concerned, oh, that's an afterlife. Because what you're trying to do is prop up your funky concept of yourself. You're not really, I mean an apology for something you did 80 years. Let me finish with this article here. So, oh shoot, doggone it. Hold on for a second. Cause I got so fired up that I went off the page. Cause I had, I picked up the newspaper. Let me go back to um, Smallwood. All right, hold on for a second. Page 49. All right, here we are. Here's where I was. So again, here's the last sentence. Last two sentences. A majority of the bondsmen, however, I'm talking about the Africans in Texas who found out after Juneteenth that it was over. A majority of the bondsmen, however, suffered no great confusion as a result of emancipation. And if they felt joy, they restrained their enthusiasm. This is not a social structure, Larry David, bulb, bulb, bulb. Curb your enthusiasm. Ain't no our ain't no funniness in this. You know why you curb your enthusiasm in public? You know why you restrain your enthusiasm in public? Because you still behind enemy lines. To quote Brother Out of Soldier. So you ain't gonna show. You think all them black people on the South Lawn of the White House on Tuesday night showed how we really felt about this? Now in the in the conversations, I can tell you. A lot of it came out, but as I was remarking as we were going along, I said, I don't know how much we want to say since all this is probably being recorded somewhere by Super Sensitive. Uh, USA, USA, let's talk after we leave here. But a lot of it came out anyway. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Last sentence, Smallwood writes, most quietly planned to leave their masters as soon as possible. And there it is. Y'all free. Hmm. Ain't you happy? Ain't you gonna sing a Negro spiritual for us? Ain't you gonna celebrate? Mm. Now, I heard General Order 3, you just read, sir. Yeah. I heard you say that we is free. 
I also heard you say, stay on the plantation that you own and work for wages. I also heard you say, do not come to the army lines because there's nothing for you to do here. And I also heard you say, don't be idle. Now, as I heard you saying it, my back is hurting from the fact I just got finished plowing 11 billion miles of this plantation. So I guess I was being idle. I don't know when the hell I ever been idle. Uh, and you want me to stay here and then go to the same cat that had the whip in his hand this morning and tell him, now you got to pay me. Mm. Mother, mm -mm. restrain your enthusiasm. First of all, you don't even know what the hell this means. But you quietly planning. In some way, you could define African-American. What is an African-American? An African-American is someone who quietly plans. <laughs> you don't know. We, that's why we had to create an Africana studies framework. You got to separate the social structure from the governance structure if you really want to study Africana. If you're not doing that, you ain't doing Africana studies. You documenting black stuff. You writing books on brothers who got yoked up in World War II, and now you giving them some, and they gonna tell the moving story of how America, fighting its past, triumphed over the former racism, and how the project remains unfinished. Yeah, because the unfinished thing is some of y'all got to use some AI to bring these cats back to life. That's the unfinished project. Why? Because it ain't nothing. It's like saying justice for Breonna Taylor. Can you bring her back to life? No, well, then ain't going to be no justice. You're going to give her family a check, and now you're going to, in some time in the future, you're going to congratulate yourself when you elect somebody to be the governor of Kentucky who's black. And you're going to say, see, this is a trust. Shut the hell up. But on the South Lawn of the White House Tuesday night, after Method Man opened this up. Oh, yeah, thank you. I see y'all dropping Gerald Horn stuff in the, uh, Gerald Horn books in, 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 in the chat. They had Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and Act 4, beginning with a battle of the bands. This is the H, the battle of the HBCU battle of the bands. Morgan State was there, the magnificent marching machine. Beautiful job, y'all. Hell of a job. Go ahead, Morgan State. Go Bears, the national treasure. And of course, I could not and did not even try to curb my enthusiasm when coming around the walkway. I spotted the director, my man Reginald McDonald, his crew, all my people, and the marching band, sixty of them anyway, which meant they were about a quarter of the whole band. But that's the limit they gave to these bands to come. You're going to bring 60. But they had enough there to give you the sound of the aristocrat of bands. My band, the one I marched in, Tennessee State University. I just left everybody. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Y'all, I got to go. These are my people right here. This is the reason I'm down here. Because when I seen them on the list, Odge, Odge hooked us. Let's, come on. So I got a chance to spend some time with my people, Tennessee State. Tennessee State, Hampton, y'all did, I mean, sorry, Morgan, y'all did a great job. Hampton was there too, and so was Fisk, but they brought their choirs, the, 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 the small choirs, the Hampton University Concert Choir, concert choir and of course, the, uh, the peerless Fisk Jubilee Singers. While I bring this up, Fred Douglas, who you quoted earlier, Prof, they that carried us off captive required of us a song. How could we sing our song in a strange land? And while they sang beautifully, while I watched these people, my Nashville people, the Africans up Jefferson Street at Fisk University and the Africans up a little further at Tennessee State, when Tennessee State played I'm So Glad I Go to TSU, every HBCU band got a version of I'm So Glad, I'm So Glad I Go to JSU, I'm So Glad I Go to, you know, wherever. Singing glory, hallelujah. I'm so glad. I'm chuckling because singing glory, hallelujah. And we sway, right? We do our hands like this. I'm so glad. Boom, 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 
boom, boom, boom, from the stage in front of the White House, the same one that Michelle Obama said, I live in a house that was built by slaves. And in 1814, them same Africans told the British how to burn it. Please do not confuse building a place with whistling while you work. Damn. Curb your enthusiasm. The point is that while they were singing, I'm looking at the Fifth Jubilee singers who had sang before that. That was beautiful. And they're swaying, doing their hands like this. What is that? That's the governance formation. Because in a social structure, they would tell you, those are two different schools. Why are you doing the hand movement for, I'm so glad I go to TSU. You don't go to TSU. That's what I'm saying. White, like them white people in South Philly got mad because Allen Iverson would show up at press conferences with Bill Russell's jersey on. You from Philly. You ain't from Boston. This is bigger than you, fool. That's your social structure beef. This is my man. He's my elder. I respect that in the context. Show up with a Jim Brown jersey. Show up with a Bill Russell jersey. What the hell are you doing? What do you mean what the hell? Are you? This is between us. So when I seen Fist doing the wave, hand wave for a Tennessee State song i represent those black kids were together when i'm seeing them together morgan and hampton and fisk and tennessee state the, the you know the students in their band uniforms in their concert dress having conversation i'm saying see this is a governance formation and then they on stage singing them negro spirituals beautifully rendered but i'm sitting there angie porter went down with us justin hansford by the way was there the director of thurgood marshall center um who I saw again, and I'll talk about this in a minute, the reparations hearing on Wednesday, he and I sat there through most of the hearing. Shout out to Kenny McDuffie. We'll talk about that in a second. D.C. has a reparations legislation. They're pushing through Councilman McDuffie is chairing, leading that, co-sponsored with Treyon White. Shout out to War 8 Southeast. But at any rate, so we, you know, I'm sitting there with Andy. We, we, we all sitting there. And as they singing these songs, and it's song after song like this, song after song like this, all the McDonald uh, performed, Maverick City Music performed. Um, and I'm hearing all these, uh, and, and so I'm sorry, it slipped out of my mouth before I could catch it. I was like, damn, did, are we still in slavery? Do we? It is Juneteenth, right? It's emancipation. All this suffering music. Understand them spirituals is not what black people were singing on the plantations. It's not what black people singing in our cultural meaning making. These are things that were drawn from those foundations of cultural meaning making, but were rendered in a way to help raise money from white folk. The Queen of England don't want to hear that ring shout clapping stuff because it scared the hell out of her why me especially since she out there trying to colonize africa where they doing that stuff and they kind of kill them so you got to come in a little different soon i will be done with the trouble give me that good news ain't got time is a god you religion i'll give you some money okay okay but then you get home Jesus can't work it out if you let him. You're going to sing a little different song. But I understand. It was beautifully rendered. But as far as I'm concerned, the highlight of the concert was when Lettucey got there. And there's no shade on Jennifer Hudson, who did an incredible job. But Lettucey, Lettucey chose to sing, Hey, let's stay together. Loving you weather. And so I'm, sad. I'm back there with Ajua, and I'm looking at the stage, Lettucey's up there. Times are good or bad. Behind her, the Hampton Choir. Come on. Come on, Hampton. Y'all did a great job singing, backing her up. Hey. Mm -hmm. Where the times are good or bad. What they got to do with Juneteenth? That's closer to Juneteenth than any song was saying that night. Why? 
because Juneteenth is a celebration. Juneteenth is a ritual where the food is there. Uh, you know, Sunyata talks about that all the time. The red cake, the red soda, all the, the color red, what that red signifies. We talked about in the archive. It's all there in, in there if you want to deep dive into it. The foods of Juneteenth. Um, it's about speeches it's about miss juneteenth pageants it's about you know everything from family reunions homecoming reunions at the, at the church it's about how we're gonna measure progress measure our progress these are so you know let's stay together why somebody come on y'all come on now from the book of al green why do people break up turn around and make up i just can't see it mm, you never do that to me <laughs> See, you got sometimes, sometimes black, see, <laughs> black people. So let's stay together. And so I'm watching from, here's the stage, let us see. I'm in the back with Arj, but then I see a cluster of these young people, about maybe 15, 20 of them from Tennessee State. They standing dead in front of me, coming back, and they all moving like this. So I pull my camera out and got a little bit of it. Why? Because see, that's the governance formation. Whether times are good or bad, happy or sad, I don't, you know, let's stay together. This is the theme of Juneteenth. Opal Lee. Mother Opal Lee. Mother Opal Lee say, we, <laughs> we are the most powerful country in the United States. She misspoke. No, she didn't. Whether she did or didn't. What came out of her mouth was accurate. You know what I immediately thought about? I thought about an essay in this book. Immediately. And I said, I cannot wait for Saturday. 1961. It's a little book of essays by Amiri Baraka before he changed his name. Leroy Jones. called Home. There's an essay in here called Black is a Country. Y'all gonna stop playing with black people today. You're going to stop playing with black people on a day that was made a federal holiday because this country thought that we was going to tear the whole country up and renegotiate it in the summer of 2020. You're going to stop playing with black people today on a federal holiday that was rushed into being a federal holiday. And now you recognize you don't know yet social structure. But what you're going to find out is, you know what Juneteenth is? Juneteenth is, as I said last year, Juneteenth is the 4th of July meets Kwanzaa. And I know some people out there saying, oh, the Juneteenth flag is red and blue with a white star. Yeah, that Juneteenth flag was invented in 1997 by a brother in the Northeast. I think Haynes is his name. But y'all can go back and look at the archive. In fact, uh, the book, one of the great books to tell you about all of that in that context is, um, let me see if I have it. I don't know. It's a book called Juneteenth, and it does a very great job on the history. But we talked about that again. We ain't got to go. We're not going to go through all that today. And as we talk about it, it's a great new children's book that just came out. Van Garrett wrote it. Reginald Adams and Samson um, Adengumba Andenuba wrote it called Juneteenth. Juneteenth. Beautiful, beautiful book, beautifully illustrated. And of course, <laughs> snacks and backpacks headed to Galveston. 
looking for the perfect spot. We parked and walked, laughed and talked until we got to the Strand. Some of y'all South Texas Negroes know what we talking about. People smiled and waved as my wagon bumped down the street. There go the, there go the Juneteenth flag with the star exploding it, a rendering of a, of a riff on the Texas star. My cool shade, shiny mirrors blocked the bright Texas sun. Oh yeah, look at these black people. Look at these people. I think this is a good spot. Dad said, smiling at mom. What do you think, son? They got their joint out. Uh-oh, is that a different color on the Juneteenth flag? What you doing, brother? What you doing? It ain't red and blue, red, white, and blue. I nodded as mom reached in the bag and removed the wrap sandwich. I was about to eat when music filled the streets. Y'all better stop playing with black people. Drums rolled, a whistle blew, a parade began. Some of y'all been to them Juneteenth parades. I ain't talking about from, 19, uh, from 2022 and 2021. I'm talking about from 1921, as Wiggins talks about. I'm talking about from 1931, 41, 51, the resurgence of Juneteenth. I'm talking about from 1970 and 80 in places like Buffalo, New York, Rochester, Minnesota, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they've been doing it for decades. I'm talking about the 90s and before where they had Miss Juneteenth and had the African rituals in Richmond, Virginia, in places like Nashville, Tennessee, Atlanta, Georgia, the place they've been doing it all along, Mobile, Alabama. Come on now, stop playing. Oh my goodness, the parade, this parade felt different. Not like the 4th of July Labor Day, many of the people in the big, bright floats looked like me. You better stop playing with black people. You better stop playing with black people. Marching bands, high step, come on, Texas Southern. Played songs I recognized from the radio. That's a HBCU band then. Soulful rhythms echo differently. Beauty queens, hands outstretched, decorated cars and trucks honk. Some of y'all know about that Juneteenth parade. Shout out to Anna Anelli, who was in the Miss Juneteenth pageant last night. I know she ripped the frame out of it down there in Colleen, Texas. Soulful rhythms echo differently. Oh, have you ever been to one? You know what I'm talking about. I told uh, my man, Reza McDonald, who wrote his dissertation on Tennessee State history, Tennessee State bands. I said, brother, you know, I read your dissertation. We stand there laughing. I said, um, boy, I wish y'all could crack out. I mean, I can stand y'all do. I'm so glad I go to TSU. They gave you two selections. You're going to get on and off the stage. But boy, I wish I'd give you, you give them a little bit of that TSU funk. Boom, 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 boom. Hit that blue note. Oh, TS, 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 You can't do that. It will overflow the boundaries of the South Lawn of the White House. They don't know nothing about that. You got to keep that contained, curb your in enthusiasm but uh they do that the juneteenth parade candy was tossed right and left sound like mardi gras and mobile what you talking about or new orleans some moonwalk to dance cameras caught to action i caught red white and blue beads long plastic neck plastic necklaces boy this is what makes the desantis and them mad Woo! everybody was happy rejoicing in the ending of slavery in texas but watch this this was gonna make them mad a national holiday is it a national holiday is this a nation miss opalee said we are the most powerful country in the united states oh Baraka say black is a country. Coming back to that in a minute. So the Freedom Day. Watch it now. He didn't say the Freedom Day that would last until night from the strand to the seawall as the light bounced off the faces of so many. Look at your people. Now you know these are black people. Look at them black people. Look how they dress in various stages of Africanity. <laughs> I searched the crowd and focused. Saw a man who looked like Papa. Father's Day coming up, y'all. White beard, shiny eyes. It was a lady who looked like Mimi. A gentle smile and smooth hands holding a snow cone. Woo, who been to the who been to the Juneteenth? See the African drum, there's so many people here. Look like us, I said, as the smell of barbecue chicken and sausage flavored the air. Wiggins talks about this. Anybody been to Juneteenth? No, in Texas, they start Juneteenth last week. Kill a cow, dig a pit, 
put it in there. You got to cook that cow for days. Everybody bringing the food, man. Eat so much, you just got to go to sleep. It's Juneteenth and the day after Juneteenth. When I was in Atlanta last year, went down there that enormous birthday. We driving through the uh, the neighborhood. And you see all these cars lined up. You hear the music from beginning to end. The music, people out there playing spades. Man, you really think we was waiting on Joe Biden to have a national? You know how long black people been celebrating Juneteenth? This isn't just a regular party. Mom held me tight and smiled. She lovingly told me of my history. Dad held her hand. Uh-oh, there goes General Granger. No, those are black men. You know who told black people they were free? Shout out to the Buffalo soldiers. Now, now, as Gerald writes, they get caught on the wrong side of history because they got to fight in the U.S. military. So when they send Charles Young and them boys down there to chase Pancho Villa and them, even though Black Jack Pershing is like, you need to promote Charles Young, he's still on the wrong side. But he's got the military of the U.S. on him. He's trying to do the best he can. Abuse and pain, heartache, facing the rising sun. Wait, I know that line. Watch out now. Watch out. Watch out. Watch out, Van Garrett. And how they overcome till victory is won. You better stop playing with us. I understood why it's important to celebrate. Sing a song for the hope that the present has brought us. This is a children's book, y'all. While we drove the miles and the stranger smile, proud to have escaped the nightmares out from the gloomy past. Why fireworks fell slowly over the ocean as a crowd became a mass choir that sang the Negro national anthem loud as the rolling sea. Come on now, Kwanzaa meets the 4th of July. Why? Understand this. The 4th of July was about Britain's children fighting against Britain. The, the kids want to leave the house. They feel like they're old now, old enough now. They're teenagers. Washington, Madison, Jefferson, the people that received a brown-faced minstrel rendering in the musical Hamilton. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, very talented, loving brother, but Ishmael Reed got you gathered on that with the haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Go get the play. Because if you're your ancestors' wildest dreams, ask the people who James Madison had enslaved whether or not they'd be celebrating you now making Madison black. Leaving that aside, the teenagers want to leave the house, so they separate from the British, and they celebrate that. They'll be cel celebrating it down here in Washington, D.C., when they do their July 4th parade. And maybe I'll go down there and bear witness, remembering Frederick Douglass's lines from July 5th, saying when, because that was a day that we used to mark, too, before the end of the Civil War. How can we sing a strange song? Sing the Lord's song in a strange land. When they come marching down the street on the 4th of July here in Washington, D.C., oh, the monkey wrapped his tail around the flag. Oh, around the flag. No. No, no, no. Because I'll guarantee you, at many of those celebrations of Juneteenth, as they've been doing for decades now, even though he has announced he's going into a form of retirement, which, you know, I don't know that black people can spell retirement. But as I know they do it in Philly, because I was there. Ron Myers, who's an ancestor, did Juneteenth for many, many years in Philly. I spoke, spoke in the Juneteenth celebration. Talking about that, going back 30 years. I know one thing, while you down there marching down with your 4th of July parade, and if it's a black band, we learned that one too. John Philip Sousa say, at the Juneteenth parade with us, you know what they're going to put on the DJ at some point? Oh, oh, oh. 
I'm gonna make sure I'm right before I let go. Yeah, Beyonce. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Beyonce remixing her, missing him. No problem. No, it's all right. And then you see Lemonade, and you see her out there. Who else? She got that marching band in the background because she came from Houston. You made Juneteenth parades. Beyonce been to and seen Texas Southern Band marching down the middle of the street. Perry View A and M. Come on now, y'all can look at us, but you can't see us. Why? We need the Africana framework for that because you done mixed many things and made a mistake. But this one. Out of desperation, you're going to try to make it into a federal holiday. Yeah, you can make it a federal holiday, but guess what? You don't combine Kwanzaa with 4th of July. What do I mean by that? If your 4th of July, what is your 4th of July, Frederick Douglass asked? If your 4th of July is you separating from your parents, our Independence Day is us separating from oppression. And we don't define freedom the way you want us to define freedom. Yesterday, went to visit a colleague who uh, is in the hospital feeling under the weather in Foggy Bottom here in Washington, D.C., George Washington University Hospital, came out, and the brothers and sisters were out there, the vendors. And just like when Barack and Michelle and Obama occupied the White House and the black vendors all over the United States of America decided to get their reparations one T-shirt at a time, one coffee mug at a time, one calendar at a time, uh, they're out there with the Juneteenth. This is this is the shirt I got on day. I got that at Odunde. Juneteenth, Reflections of Black Experiences. I got this one because I like the fact that it got Araminta on it, that it's got uh, Ida B. Wells, Barnett on it, it's got Anson Davis on it, it's got Martin Luther King and W.E.B. Du Bois. More women than men. I like the colors. The brothers were selling and sisters were selling Juneteenth t-shirts at the Yoruba Festival, which I neglected to mention last week and should have, but ain't nobody miss it. Hundreds of thousands of Africans converge on the second Sunday in June and have been doing it for almost 50 years uh, in South Philly, uh, as and give offerings to Oshun through uh, on the in the Schuylkill River, something called Odunde, Loris and Laura Fernandez. Y'all heard me talk about it before. Those sisters are now ancestors. Uh, Mama Loris's daughter, uh, Bumi, is now the director of Odunde, and everybody down there. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful on Sunday. That's the Odunde ritual. So I got this at the Odunde ritual. But yesterday, coming out of the hospital, I seen the brother. So get, before getting back on the metro, picked up this t shirt. July 4, crossed out. Juneteenth, 1865. That ain't the red, blue, and white star of that 1997 Juneteenth flag. It's the red and the yellow and the green with the black background. Juneteenth, because my ancestors weren't free in 1776. See, the problem they have with Juneteenth is that the Kwanzaa principle of Kujichagalia as we know, Professor Hunter keeps those in Guzo Saba, those principles going year round. Self-determination. Self-determination is at the heart of what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about self-determination. We're talking about self-determination. We're not talking about, I'm glad you ain't with me no more. That's important. I'm not talking about, you know, I want to go to school with y'all. I want the same thing you got. No, hell no. That was never the objective. The objective is I want to do whatever the hell I want to do. Miss Opal Lee say, Mother Opal Lee say, we're the most powerful country in the United States. Who says she misspoke? I immediately thought about Baraka in his essay, Black as a Country. This is what Amir Baraka says. Amir Baraka says, what I am driving at is the fact that to me, the Africans, Asians, and Latin Americans who are news today because of their nationalism, 
because he's writing in 1961, meaning these countries are taking their independence and the United States don't like it because see, the thing about the United States is, the thing about white nationalism is, the thing about uh, settler colonialism and white supremacy is, they want you to dream of freedom on the terms that they give you, that those social structures give you. So when you want out of enslavement, it must be so you can look like the people who enslaved you, go to the schools that they built. Your whole dream is to be with them. You can't even know my dream. I don't tell you my dream. And when I'm forced to be in public with you, I'll give you a little pronouncement. And every once in a while, an elder overflows the boundaries and says something like, we're the most powerful country in the United States. And y'all think it's a misspeak, but I'm hearing it with different ears. Baraka goes on to say, what I'm driving at is the fact that to me, the Africans, Asians, and Latin Americans who are news today because of their nationalism, i.e. the militant espousal of the doctrine of serving one's own people's interests before those of a foreign country, like the United States, are exactly the struggles of the black man in this country, the language is dated, I'm going to say black people, of course, in this country, should use in our struggle for independence. This is what he says. And then he writes, and that is what the struggle remains, for independence from the political, economic, social, spiritual, and psychological domination of the white man, of white people, of white supremacy, of a white system. Independence. See, freedom. They dreamed of one day being able to vote. One day of being, no, what they dreamed is you leave them alone. Self-determination. Is that all they dreamed of? Let's see what Baraka says, because he says black is a country. Like Mother Opal Lee said, we are the most powerful country in the United States. I'm listening to her with the ears of those children from Tennessee State and Fisk and Hampton. I'm listening to her from the, the voices of Lettucey. The last time I saw Lettucey was also in a public space down the street at the Martin Luther King Memorial when she and Stevie Wonder performed together at the dedication of the King Memorial. It's a beautiful thing. What does Baraka say? He says, put more simply, the struggle moves to make certain that no person has the right to dictate the life of another person. There it is. Oh, there it is. Now, sure y'all saw the Brackeen case, this, uh, the Iqua case, the Indian Child Welfare case that came down from the Supreme Court 7-2 decision that was decided, which I thought was very interesting in terms of how it broke down. And I won't talk much more about it today, but I want to mention this. Amy Comey Barrett wrote the majority opinion for the Supreme Court, 34-page uh, opinion. Uh, Neil Gorsuch concurred. His concurrence was 38 pages. He considers himself a champion of the indigenous people, by the way. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh wrote a two-page uh concurrence but it was also kind of a warning like hold on now don't slow your roll don't think we won't revisit this clarence thomas mad clarence you gonna have a stroke bro clarence been writing these hella long descents i can't wait i'm sure they're giving him the affirmative actions and i'm sure we be back here next week talking about that case but he wrote a 40 page descent <laughs> 40 page descent he mad because he don't think he first, it comes down to this i don't think congress has the power to protect indigenous children staying with indigenous families. I just don't think they had the power. I don't think they had the power under the federal constitution. Clarence Thomas, he's a magnificent Negro. I love Clarence Thomas because Clarence Thomas believes he's doing it for the race. I ain't mad at him. And then Sam Alito follows up with an 11 page dissent. But here's the takeaway. Wait, what race? Which race? Well, I think, I think he thinks that this black self-determination has to be filtered through individual black effort. And so he wants to remove all the barriers for that. So if you get an ass whooping, it's because you're an individual and you're just not good enough. It's a warped thing. It's diseducation. But he, I, Corey Robbins' book, I think, is excellent on this topic. In fact, it's really the first book I think anybody should start with, Clarence Thomas, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. 
because Robin reads him as a black nationalist. And of course, all the people after was public say, this is a brilliant reading. Nobody's ever done this. Oh, no, you should pay attention. We saw him. As, we saw what he was trying to do when he was being confirmed. When I was in law school, 89 and 90, 91. It's very clear what's going on here with Clarence Thomas. If you read the if you read his opinions, Clarence Thomas is a rugged individualist. It, I mean, and he, well, anyway, it's a story for another. Actually, I'll mention him again in a second. But the takeaway from the Indian Child uh, Welfare Cat uh, case, Brackeen, Holland versus Brackeen, Deb Holland, Secretary of the Interior, which includes the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which regulates uh, or, uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was passed by Congress in 1978. And the Brackeens were two white families, white uh, a white family, white evangelical family, trying to take these Native American children from Native American people. The takeaway is this. The Supreme Court ruled last week that Aboriginal people in, in this country, First Nations people, are governed through by Congress. Their relationship is with Congress. And, you know, race is more about sovereignty here because, of course, Thomas and Alito and them like, well, they, you can't use race and they're a race. They're not a race in the same way. These are the home team. They were here before. It's hard. You can't read Indigenous people as race in the same way that you read us. That's our struggle around reparations. Maybe we we'll talk about that next week. I'm not going to keep going too much today, but I do want to spend some time on this DC uh, reparations commission because that was the first time I had come in person. I testified in California, as did most of the people who were there yesterday, uh, but I did it virtually. So we were there. Camila Moore was there, of course, who's the chair of the California State uh, Reparations uh, Task Force. Sandy Darity was there. Christian Mullen, who you know have a different view on reparations. Um, which they kind of moderated, and you all can see it all if you go to the city, uh, the, the the city of Washington D.C., the D.C. City Council. Uh, if you go to their um, website, it was all recorded. In fact, some of the ADOS people are coming for me on social media. I wish they're not as tasty a snack as they were two or three years ago. This the, the, seems like the quality is deteriorating. Uh, I hope some of them may have come down to City Council, but none of them showed up. You know, if you're going to be a snack to, for me to kind of snack on at least try to make yourself tasty you're losing your taste now but at any rate uh shout out to kenya mcduffie who is the uh city council as i said person who in introduced it uh Trayon white who joined him for the press conference before that um donnie crawford um who uh, is one of his chief one of his chief uh people in legislative i think she's legislative director perhaps in in, in his office all these young black people in D.C. City Council working down there. In fact, as I came out to, to go to the little boys room in between uh, sessions, uh, somebody stopped me who's a staffer down there. Another person who joins us on Saturdays. And there were a couple of Nubians there, which I thought was fantastic. In fact, the first person who came up just before testimony started, she was on the second panel. She said, oh, hey, Dr. Carr, I'm a Nubian. I was like, wow, it's good to see you. Uh, that's our sister Tanya Wellens. If you hear it, Tanya, it's good. It, it was good to see you on, on Thursday. Uh, she's the president and CEO of Greater Washington Community Foundation. Does a lot of incredible work, grant making, supporting institutions, and again, one of the growing Nubian nation. So I just wanted to pass those greetings on. She told me, of course, you can't, and and to the whole Nubian family. But at any rate, so I want to talk about that in a minute. But let me finish up this context of, in this context of independence and what we want and how that doesn't fit and overflows the boundaries so that Juneteenth becomes a revelation to the U.S. social structure that we have never, we have never fallen in line with this narrow version that you want to narrate to us on freedom because y'all wanted voting rights and independence from oppression in the sense of being able to get quality health care and education, all things Mother Opalese. And we said, yeah, mm -hmm. and y'all wanted integration. You didn't want to be in those segregated schools. And we was like, 
Well, you, re- you think we're going to tell you what we really think? Every once in a while, if you keep effing with us, we're going to tell you. You kill Martin Luther King, we burn up 100 cities. Why? I mean, because, okay, now you say, what is people? Uh-huh. Because what you really think is with the well, let me, domestic enemies. But let me finish what Barack is saying in Black is a Country, which I thought about as Opal Lee gave her remarks the other night at the White House. He says this. Put more simply, the struggle moves to make certain that no person has the right to dictate the life of another person. That's important. See, that's what Clarence Thomas claims he's after. In the Indian child welfare case, what you saw was the Supreme Court by 7-2 margin said that Congress negotiated with the indigenous people and that as a result, one of the things pursuant to that was the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 passed by Congress, signed by the president, which says that if you are a Native American child, they put you up for adoption. If you're in a foster parent situation, indigenous people get the first crack at bringing you into those families, either another indigenous family in your nation or tribe, as people will call them, or uh, another indigenous family that's not of your tribe before these other people can have you. Now, of course, Thomas and Alito is like, Congress can't do that because that's racial discrimination. Nobody can do it. But what Comey Baird is saying, which was interesting, and Gorsuch in his in his longer concurrence is like, now Congress made a deal with them. And it's very interesting when you read the end of Gorsuch's concurrence, because what he's basically saying is, we was at war with these people. This was part of the negotiated truce. These peoples, because it ain't, but Native American ain't a racial category. There are many different nations within Native America. He said, as a result, we're supposed to keep our word on this because he's basically saying this is an ongoing project. But see, the numbers here of indigenous people don't rise to the physical number, to the demographic number to be a threat, so to speak. However, the numbers of us who are not white, who are in this configuration, are a threat. This affirmative action thing is going to be very interesting. Baraka continues and he says this. The struggle is not simply for equality, he has in quote marks, or better jobs, in, in, in quotes, or better schools, in quote, and the rest of those half-hearted liberal cliches. I guess this just wipes out everybody making Juneteenth speeches from the federal government side. He continues, it is to completely free the black person from the domination of the white, nothing else. Now, here's where it gets a little tight. Clarence, if you're here listening, he might have written this with you in mind. The man who, er- who asked the question, would you let your daughter marry one? Must realize that that question is generally outmoded. This from a man who was married to a white woman, Hetty Jones. Leroy Jones, Hetty Jones. He said, again, the man who asked the question, would you let your daughter marry one? Must realize that that question is generally outmoded. The question now for those same people becomes, what would I do if one turned my daughter down it is the freedom to make the choice that is my insistence and the insistence i hope of most black americans and it is the new nationalists everywhere who are pointing out dramatically the road our own struggle must take in america black is a country the Cubans attacked by this country because they refuse to let themselves be solely used to further the industrial interests of this country. Communism is not the issue. Lumumba was killed because he resisted the designs of the neo-colonialists to continue to make money from the labors of the African. Communism, again, was not the issue. The point Barack is making is this. It isn't that we all agree as African people on what should or shouldn't be done. The problem that a social structure has is when you don't define your interests the same way they do. 
So it isn't, would you let your daughter marry one? No, it would be, what would you do if he turned your daughter down? What would you do if he turned your son down? What would you do if he turned, you know, your, your, your children down? In other words, I get to choose. That's what you don't want. And every once in a while, do you really think that if we had chosen to throw a Juneteenth party on the South Lawn of the White House, it'll look like what we saw the other night? No. Now, I'm not saying we would have been, uh, would have gone full hillbilly with it. <laughs> Remember when Andrew J Jackson was inaugurated, he let all his Tennessee and North Carolina friends in there, and they left after the inauguration, and cheese was smeared on the walls and all kinds of, yeah. Well, we know what they're going to do. By the way, shout out to Justin Jones and Justin Pearson for being elected, re-elected to their seats in the Tennessee legislature last week. But them Tennesseans, their, uh, their ancestors, when they friend Andrew Jackson got inaugurated, they tore up the White House. We, we know how to act. Hell, we built the place, right? But we also did show the British how to burn it. But the point is this. It wouldn't have been a different party. And I've got a glimpse of the party we would have had when Lettucey was singing Let's Stay Together. Because that's not, give me that good news. No, that's like, let's stay together. And everybody was swaying. I'm like, yeah, loving you, whether times are good or bad, happy or sad. We're going to fight with each other. That's part of being us in the world. But I'm telling you right now, it's very important as this summer school phase of in class begins and we switch it up shortly we know we're gonna switch it up we're gonna do some a few little different things you've seen a little bit of the previews with some of the uh on the road uh navigating as uh professor hunter as you have named it i got my navigating gear we'll be out here navigating in these nubian streets and being safe as the phrase says on the shirt but the key missing element the element that we're going to be talking about this next week because i'm gonna line this up today because i do want to talk about this dc reparations commission because it was very important the the key element in this in fact let me just preview a little bit for next week just very quickly because a number of the panelists there were over 100 people testified on on thursday about reparations dc is passing a bill to do create a commission and many of the people said it's got to be based on the local needs of the african people of washington dc one of the points i made is that we have to rethink race and displace whiteness i'm not for lineage-based reparations i think it is narrow uh, Darity and Mullen made the point that they think federal reparations is the way to go and that you shouldn't call local reparations reparations. You should call it racial equity. Uh, that's debatable. I can understand that. Uh, 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 Attorney Moore in California made the point that, you know, the move was made there to embrace lineage-based reparations as a strategy. Uh, another commissioner, Dr. Cheryl Grills, testified remotely. She was on the commission. She said, I did not agree with that. I feel like it was a rushed conversation and it was kind of a setup to begin with. And of course, I don't embrace lineage-based reparations. Uh, I, I said at the commission, I said um, at, on D, at DC on Wednesday, on Thursday, I said because uh, Commissioner Moore raised Erman Chemerinsky, the dean of UCAL Berkeley Law, and said he is he supported lineage-based reparations. And I testified after her, and I said, well, you know, uh, as Ms. Moore talked about Erman Chemerinsky, let me add because I testified right after Erman Chemerinsky that. The reason he said that is because California's hands are tied because their state constitution through referendum change says that you can't use race to affect public policy. So lineage is a legal strategy to try to do it. But, and I told this, I said, any lawyer tell you, a legal scholar, that they will often use uh, lineage as a proxy for race. So that doesn't guarantee that any policy 
of reparations will in fact survive legal challenge, even though the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, now that the report is coming out, seems to be dragging his feet. Oh, that was a surprise. But anyway, the point is that I don't embrace that. I said, we must now renegotiate the legal concept because if you read the constitution, there's nothing in the constitution that bars race-based repair. Race-based restitution is what we should really call it. That's what Darity them talking about. They ain't talking about repair. I'm working my way back to that in about one minute. So I'm coming back. Distinguishing between reparations and repair and restitution. There's two different things. Darity's an economist. He's talking about restitution. He's talking about repair. Not in that deep psychological the things that Baraka is talking about. The things I think they're in Miss Opal Lee implied when she's talking about us being a country, which she's not, but she is as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, it's a slip, but it was a useful point of entry. The point I'm trying to make is this, as I kind of wind up the D.C. thing. We can talk about this a little bit later. What I made, the point I made is that in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the Constitution, or the Fifth Amendment, which is what D.C. is going with because it exists as a kind of colony outside of the federal uh, apparatus in terms of states, it's not the 14th Amendment, which makes the Fifth Amendment apply to the states. It's the Fifth Amendment that D.C. finds itself subject to. Is that there's nothing in that language that precludes race-based remedies. That all of the interpretations that you can't use race-based remedies over the last 50 or so years, the wars of judge-made law, particularly the Supreme Court, to read the Constitution that way, that's judge-made law. It can be changed. And that's what Katanji Brown, Katanji Brown Jackson, Katanji Onyika Brown Jackson is doing in her dissents. When you read her dissents, she's going back to the arguments they had as they passed the 14th Amendment and to the plain language of the 14th Amendment. And she's reminding us that there's no obstruction in that language from race-based remedies. And in fact, the point I, one of the points I made in testifying was what you have seen over the last 50 years through this notion of colorblind constitutionalism, as Derrick Bell would call it, or race-neutral principles in judge-made interpretations, statutory interpretations of the Constitution, what you've seen is a protection for whiteness. So if you want to talk about a protected class, it's whiteness. That's how you can get a judgment for this white woman in Starbucks. Why, I'm white. I was discriminated because I'm white. They're not making no distinction. They said, we can do that. Why? Because the Constitution is colorblind. No, the Constitution has race-based remedy in the 14th Amendment. Damn it. Did you read it? No, you, you're trying to serve your master. Some of you who aspire to being masters, you want it. And then Clarence, you're trying to serve your master. That is a protected, you've made whiteness a protected class. And that's what must be eliminated. But as we continue that conversation later in the day, there were a number of witnesses, some of whom I'll mention next week, I think, as we talk about this. Because, again, between Juneteenth and Fourth of July becomes the corridor where we can talk about renegotiating the terms of this country called United States. They don't know what they did by making this a federal holiday because this is going to get worse. And then we go play a bit with and eat some barbecue or jump some rope. But but, but uh, yeah, let me let, let, let me let me end with that because I'm going to talk about these oh, I'm, very quickly. I'm gonna, uh, these philanthropists who were there. I want to talk about them. I'll do that next week. Um, and then. I'm going to talk next week about, because we're in that corridor, about how we define we in this context. Because what I was while I was moving stuff around the other day, I came across something that, uh, you know, these 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 kind of odd end things, pamphlets and stuff, I don't like them get bent up. So if they weren't in storage, I slot them certain places. And in the cachet was this one. This is called The History of the Negro People. NET, the National Education Television, some of y'all probably remember NET. It did a television series, nine-part television series, History of the Negro People, aired on public television. Ozzie Davis was the narrator. 
This is what 1965. So that's 58 years after the 1619 Project episodes aired on ABC. But the thing I love about this is, and we'll pick up with this next week. At the end of it, I mean, they went to Africa, they went to Brazil. There's John Williams in Africa, returned to Africa. It is a very different narrative than we get with stuff. Now, I get tired of people. Let me, let me, hold on, because we, we're ending and I, I kind of got a little sloppy there. Let me say this. Beginning, ending where we began with your conversation with Mother Fletcher. It is not that we don't have memory. It is that we must now strengthen the momentum of our memory by recovering our remembering that we had memory and looking at the things that we've done before to reclaim that memory. Otherwise, we keep creating as if we're creating from scratch and the definitions of freedom don't become what Barack is talking about. They become dictated by the social structure and we narrow the definitions that we had and that we talked about as recently as even in the 60s when we were doing television series to talk about this. So when I read books now, or I see these things which talk about a new interpretation, and two things occur to me. Either number one, I'm saying, you're telling me what you didn't read, what you didn't study, what you don't know. Or number two, you knew it, but you just decided to ignore it. Both are not nearly as useful. In fact, the second one is almost a betrayal of the momentum of our memory. The ninth program was something called The Future and the Negro. Here's a problem. There are no women on that panel. Ozzie Davis is sitting in the middle. Who else is there? John Hope Franklin is sitting over here. Uh, Basil Davison, the white dude, British writer, is sitting there. Chief Adebo, who was the Nigerian ambassador to the UN. John Davis, who was the American Society of African Culture. And by the way, on YouTube, I saw Bunny Withers the comment prop about our conversation last week. She said, you know, we helped her son get out. Yes, of Howard. Good young brother. Money with his father was Ernest Withers, by the way. The, the signed copies I have of Ernest Withers' photographs, you know, he catches a lot of hell about the FBI relationship, whatever. He came to that graduation. I think I told you that story before. But I want to just leave finally with a Ozzie Davis asked the chief, Chief Adebo, who was the Nigerian ambassador to the United States, 1965. This was aired on public television. Mr. Ambassador, a, a nine-part series that ends with this conversation. Mr. Ambassador, I understand that the word Negro is not a word that is used in Africa. Is that so? Chief Adebo says, it is not a word that is commonly used in Africa because when you are all Negroes, you don't go about asking Negroes and talking about Negroes. He said, the question arises only when you get into a place in which you form the racial minority. So we talk more and discuss more about the Caucasian and the future of the Caucasian, then they all start laughing, than about the question of the future of the Negro. Because the question they started with on the previous uh, panelists was, is there a future for the Negro? They mean in the United States. So when he asked the African brother, he says, damn, he said, we don't know. We talk about the future of white people. He said, because over there, we assume that the Negro, we take it for granted that the Negro has a future. And then we ask that in the context, what is the future of the Caucasian? Over here, where the Negro is the racial minority, the question is about the future of the Negro. As a person working in the international sphere and believing honestly in internationalism, I now just ask myself, what is the future of the human race? Oof. Mother, when, listen, when she got up there and Mother Opal Lee and ended with, we all going to hell in the handbasket, 
I swear, what I heard in my ear was Chief Adero saying, look, we are Africans. We're the strongest country in the United States. We have no, we have shown y'all what to do with the indigenous people, the Asian people, some of these white people. But I promise you, if we don't get a hand on this education, this global warming, we all going to hell. At which point the vice president's like, okay, no, no. Uh-huh. Mother spoke. Y'all better listen to this, Elder. So I'm gonna <laughs> no, um, and let me just say this. First of all, thank you. We are the global majority. So we need to uh, remind ourselves that the future of the world depends on us being whole. Yes. So let's, let's get whole. Uh, also, thank you for reading people's dissertations. Thank you for reading every single daggone book that comes out and all the footnotes. <laughs> no, because, you know, to your point, the shadow ban is the problem. But most of us don't have the time, energy, acumen to actually read all of the things that we need to know. So we have to trust somebody. You know, I'm just reading Michael Harriet has a thread on on Nimrata, uh, yes. Nikki Haley, who had yes. some, some stupid thing to say that would go unchecked. But for Michael Harriet's study, no question, man, studies. So no you can't get away with stuff talking to you. You were on NBC this week uh, talking about Juneteenth and oh, yeah. didn't know what to do. <laughs> After you spent, I was like, <laughs> it was just two minutes with the young Tommy McFly, the young white dude. They put, hey man, oh we're gonna talk about this. <laughs> he was in there, he, but what you know what? I in that moment, he didn't know the things that you were saying. It, it never no. occurred to him. And no. this is why we have to be in these spaces talking, which is why I was happy to see you because it's not you know some nefarious plan in the back with them. You know, it's not the evil. It's the ignorant that will get us. It's not no. the evil. It's the no. ignorant. So. You educate a whole bunch of people on NBC, oh, yeah. and I appreciated it. I, and uh, thank you. Happy to do it, Prof. Happy to do it, and happy that we have this because you're right. In those moments, if they call me, sure, I'll, I'll give a couple of minutes. You know, we'll do that. But we have this because we have this. This is the thing that Juneteenth is really about. Those black people were not waiting on white people to recognize them. Are we out? Okay, hold on. Don't tell them nothing. Let's get a little money. When when uh, John Henry don't go anywhere. When John Henry, as we talked about it, John Henry Yates, known as Jack Yates, and his brothers and sisters got that money together and bought Emancipation Park. And I was talking with Dean Rashad, Felicia Rashad, a few months ago, and I said, "You've been to Juneteenth all the time." Then she said, "My daddy's office was across the street from Emancipation Park. I went to Jack Yates High School. Of course, I've been doing Juneteenth since I was a baby. We was laughing about that." Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen graduated from Jack Yates High School. And so did George Floyd. And now we have a holiday because George Floyd lost his life on literally on African Liberation Day, which is also Memorial Day in this country. Uh, to, uh, yesterday was uh, um, uh, Youth Day in South Africa, marking 1976, the Soweto insurrection, where the police killed those black children because they said we're not learning Afrikaans. Right. It all converged. Also, also that weekend, the Tulsa massacre. Yes! I mean, it's like... It goes on. But the yeah. irony that the death of those three, Ahmaud Aubrey, then Breonna Taylor, which is, and then George Floyd dies, and the world shifts, and they say, give them a holiday. You thought it was a concession. You thought it was like you giving these brothers this, this clearing of their Navy records 80 years after you did it to them. But what you messed around and did is give us another point of entry. We are going to bring this world into rightness. So I think it's a good thing. I say, uh, happy Father's Day to everyone. Everyone. Uh, daddy, everyone who has fathered something. Uh, happy Father's Day. Enjoy your red drink and all of the redness and all of the things y'all are doing this weekend. I'm going to be, of course, uh, on the air on Monday. We're going to have office hours, of course, on Monday. Three hours without the black with Baba Oma? 
Come on. I'm hey, like, you playing. Look, you, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm going to have playing. Oh I'm my gosh. You know, I mean, but let me also say, you know, the gratitude of, of being able to sit with people who have lived a life and have inspired me to understand that the reason why you get up every day is to do something. Absolutely. Right. Mother Opal Lee had a, had a vision and a purpose and she didn't stop. Mother Fletcher is not closing her eyes until there's justice, you know, and she's staying ready at one oh nine. Her her little brother said, "I got twenty. Well, he said he's gonna be here. He's hundred and two. He said I got twenty eight more years. His plan is to be here hundred and thirty years. I'm like to do what? And he fresh and spry as everything. I'm like, yo, I just got hit on by a hundred two year old man. His, his knees look like they do work a little something. Yeah, so you like, come on now, come on, you know, like, like, wait a minute now. No, but you know, it's 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 incredible that we get to be here, right? That we get we get to be here, Doctor Carr, doing this in this time. Yeah. This is a time. This is a time. It's a it's a time. This is the truth. You know what? Ancestors don't make no mistake. We're here for this purpose, and thank you because again, we're all in this. But there wouldn't be a this for us all to be in if you hadn't said, "I will do this." This is what standing in the gap. Hey, uh, this is what it looks like. This but, is what it, this is what it looks like. Yes, and you know that navigate that came out of the brain of Uraeus, right? Everything that we are is a collective. Everybody, everybody. Why the bricks are important. You know, yes. I'm not inspired by myself. I sat there. I was like, this man is genius. The people need to hear this. No All question. right, I got a platform. I'm going to hit record, put it out there. I don't know yeah. if anybody's going to tune in. You don't know, but you then people know. participate. And so- Urias is on, boy. Hey, Bob, I know me and him will talk Monday night. I went to see The Flash. Uh, my mind was hurting, but- uh, Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we love- Yeah, but we, listen, we love you. And yes, it is a collective. It is a collective. And that is, the, and that and that's Juneteenth. Juneteenth was never about one thing. It was a collective. It is a collective. And so Dan, yeah, Dan said it, the Nubians came in, in the Montgomery to Crest where they had a cultural center last week and showed out. So this is, I, thank you. I can, that's all I'm going to say. Thank you. I'm grateful. Y'all well, have a happy Juneteenth and think about your ancestors like this children's book said. Ashe, hold that up one more time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there are many of them. I just picked this one because it just came out. I got it at Sankofa. It's called Juneteenth, Van Garrett, Reginald Adams, and Samson Bimbo Adenukba. Meaning what? This is a pan-African thing. And yeah, you see the Juneteenth flag there, but I see all these red, black, and green symbols on Juneteenth, which lets me know that we didn't already overflowed the boundaries because we never were in those boundaries. So yeah, y'all get some children's books. Get some get some Juneteenth children's books for your children. Narrative. We got the list of black bookstores. Y'all better do it. Love you. <laughs>